I uh, have given Matt Hartford a special assignment. And if you know the gospel is a two-edged sword. With one, you bring someone to conviction that they're in their sin. So they seek a way of life. And the second part is you bring that message of life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a double-edged sword. Well, this whole concept of trusting God is a double-edged sword. We need to recognize that in part the world is going to draw us away, the devil is going to draw us away, and we're going to put our trust in the world. That's what the, how the devil operates. We need to expose that. Because if you don't believe that those forces are powerfully working to steal your trust in God, your trust in God is not going to be full. The message that... Uh, uh, is the second cornerstone for the messages all this year long, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 11. It's a powerful message, putting both of those together. But I wanted to preempt that with Matt coming and sharing what not to trust in. And then he's going to follow up right after dinner. The next lesson is going to be Matt once again, and he's going to bring, obviously, how to build that trust in God. And I trust you to come up and really deliver both edges of the sword so that we're convicted first of our need to reject trusting anything but God and then coming and powerfully teaching us that. So let's bring him up, Matt Hartford. For He's like, do you hug? I'm like, man, I'm from the East. We hug in the East. <laughs> man, good song selection for that last one. All those minor chords. Duh, duh, duh. Yeah, we're talking about some gloomy stuff today, but. <laughs> you got to laugh a little bit about it. Um, you know, it is, it is pretty serious, but, uh, and, and, you know, th those of you, those of you who know me, um, you know, if you know my family, you know, I have three wonderful children. I have an amazing wife, and, and all three of my kids are very, very different. Um, you know, my, my son, Joel, he's my oldest boy, very steady, you know, very uh, you know, good, solid, dependable guy. You know, Jaden, he's the, the jokester also, a good, solid, dependable guy. And Leah, my daughter, she is exuberant. She is, uh, you know... She has a lot of, in, in, in her earlier days, she had a lot of drama. And, and I've always kind of wondered, you know, where'd she get that? And, and after a good long look in the mirror, I, I recognize it's my wife. <laughs> no, it's, it's me. It's, it's, it's me. I, I, I have a tendency towards, towards drama. And, and I don't like drama. I don't know why I have a tendency, tendency towards it. So you, you look at my title for this, it's kind of dramatic. Leaving Babylon, right? Don't trust a broken reed. Who, who knows that, that broken reed reference? Who, who knows where that's from? Who's the broken reed that I'm, that I'm referencing from the original text? Yeah, King of Egypt, right? We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. I need to forget it. Yeah, so it's... it's my background, for, for those of you who know Bill, you know, Bill's trying to talk to, you know, about not trusting in material wealth. My background, yes, I'm, I'm a preacher. I've been a preacher for, it's my 30th, 30th year in, in ministry. Um, can't, sorry about that. Can't believe that it's been that long. Um, but for the last 22 years, I've been in the financial field too. 
Uh, about 15, 16, 16 of those years, I was a financial advisor uh, in, in Ohio and in Florida. Um, in the last five years, I, I worked for a fintech company, uh, and the company sells a lot of products that, that possibly uh, you use if you work with anybody in, in a financial field. I was talking to Andrew, actually, and uh, you know his bank, they outsource um, their investments to a company that uses our software. So it's, it's kind of interesting to, to kind of see those, those connections. Um, so I, when, when I talk about the financial industry, when I talk about these types of things, um, I, I do know a little bit about it. Uh, and, and the thing that I can tell you is that even though I've spent years talking to people about their investments and talking to them about their money, the number one thing you should not trust in is money. Especially where the financial world is going. Okay, um, and, and I'm going to lay that case out today. And, and again, it's going to be it's going to be a little bit heavy, uh, and, and I hope it's not not too heavy because the the, the thing that I want to kind of punctuate this whole conversation with is this. Uh, Steve Doty remembers this message because he he references it once in a while. I can't remember if it was 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. It was Pennsylvania Family Camp. And we're talking about how, how God, you know, the scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about how he places everybody in the body just as he sees fit. A lot of people think that that's where in the body, you know. Hey, you know, I'm, a, I'm an eyeball, I'm an ear, you know. Some, some people are armpits. Um, they're necessary, uh, but they stink, right? Um, you know, they're, they're different people are different functions. But God only also places people not just where, but when. When? So when, when we're looking through history, when God's looking through uh, uh, time, trying to figure out who he's going to place, where and when, if we're headed for dark times, I actually get excited because God has chosen us Amen. to be alive at this time for a reason. Right. We should rejoice in that. Yep. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't, you know, you know we were talking about that, the, the Hall of Faith there. You know, Mike brought up guys like Moses, and you look at the list of people there and what they did. I don't know. I don't want to go to heaven and, and, and sit there with, with Isaiah. And he talks about, you know, being sawn in two. He said, yeah, man, I know how you feel. I, I had to get up early and read my Bible. <laughs> Man, you know, like in the wintertime when it's cold and that alarm goes off and it, ooh, it's just so comfy in the bed. I, that was my cross to bear. I, me personally, I don't, I don't want to go without suffering. And you know, God obliges. He really does. Hey, look at this way. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we're not going to go there, but Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. If we're followers of Christ, if we are Christians and we belong to him, do we think that we're going to get to be followers of Christ without following what he did? If he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, do you think we're not going to learn obedience? And if we do learn obedience, how's it going to be? Through suffering. See, so 
The scriptures are, are, are full of admonitions and warnings. You know, but a lot of people, you know, they have a tendency not to listen to them. And, and sometimes they, they can kind of fall on deaf ears when it comes to Christians too. Right? Um, and, and I think, you know, sometimes the, the reason we don't pay attention to God's warnings is we think, okay, you know, God is a, is a loving and a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. And, you know, if, if I happen to, to not follow it, you know, I, I could just ask for forgiveness. And God is a loving and forgiving God. He, he is merciful. He will give you forgiveness. But that's not how that's supposed to work. Right? The admonitions are there to actually be followed. He, he's loving and forgiving, but he has also laid out certain immutable laws and principles that have consequences. You know, one of the more famous ones is you, know, you reap what you sow. If you reap to the side of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption, right? If you sow the spirit, you're going to reap life. It's, it's an immutable law. It's, it's unchangeable. That's, that's what happens. So there's a couple of other ones that, that are actually going to kind of lay out uh, today that, that are going to be really kind of applicable. One of them is no one can serve two masters. We're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve God in both. It's not possible. Another one is not to be conceited or to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And another one that we're going to hit later, the last part of this message, is come out of Babylon, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins to receive her plagues. So there's going to be some, some gentle admonition today, but there's also going to be some kind of Old Testament prophetic, you know, God in your face kind of stuff today too. Because that stuff needs to happen as well. Now, I don't necessarily like preaching that kind of stuff, but hey, it's there. And it's in the New Testament too. Jesus said stuff like that before. So I hope you take this for, for what it's kind of designed to be. An encouragement that you can't trust anything in this life. It's fleeting, it's transitory, and it's actually built on nothing. But man, do people go for it. Topic I have is twofold today. Bill Mitch is going to be divided into two messages. First one, what we're going to talk about today is not trusting in the U.S. dollar or wealth of this world. And then the second one is to put all your trust in God. Let's, let's open up to Matthew chapter 6. That sun's in a great spot, right? I know it's shining. I can see it's shining off my forehead pretty good. Good thing some of you guys with no hair aren't up here, man. I don't think people on Facebook would be able to see. Peyton and I were talking about how we're both fluent in sarcasm today. So, <clears throat> My first point, and please make no mistake about this, the wealth of this world seeks to dominate it does. That's its desire. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. 
very simple principle Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But man, do people try to do it in the church. Okay, so when we get to a little bit of part of this, um, you know, we're going to see some things that are going to fly in the face of our American sensibilities. We have to be exceedingly careful not to interpret the scriptures through an American lens. The scriptures are not American. The kingdom of God is not American. It's transnational, supranational. See, we have brethren that live in communist countries. We don't tell them to repent and become Americans to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We got to understand this. So when I talk about wealth, I'm not just talking about the, you know, the the money in your pocket, you know, and, and I'm going to pull this, pull this out because I mean, this is, this is what we have. I, I'm loaded guys. I have, if anybody's thinking about robbing me, I have $60 up here. I travel, I travel heavy. I travel heavy. Okay. You know, who's that? Hamilton on the front of that one? Yeah. Hamilton. All these dead white guys, they all look alike. Um, <laughs> let me put my glasses on here. Hold on. I know it's on here somewhere. Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, on the back. This stuff's holy because it says, in God we trust. <laughs> Truth in advertising? <laughs> so I, 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 I'm not just talking about this, the, the, the green stuff, you know? I'm, I'm talking about all the things that money can buy, Right? I'm, I'm talking about possessions. I'm talking about comfort. I'm talking about power. And the all-encompassing term, stuff. Mankind has been unchanged on this since, his, since he was created. Wealth and all that comes with it seeks to dominate everything about people, and people are very willing to let it do so. This is Babylon. When we talk about Babylon, this is everything that we're talking about. Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we're going to be going there at the end. It's, it's everything that comes with this, right? It's lust, it's control, it's power, it's desire, it's the possessions, all that comes with money. This subtly and sometimes not so subtly makes its way into the life of the Christian. You know, and it, it isn't always a bad motivation. I'm not trying to say that if, that if somebody's kind of focused on, on earning a buck, that it's a bad thing. You have to take care of your family, don't you? I mean, food just doesn't magically appear in your refrigerator. You have to earn money to pay for it. You, you can't keep yourself warm without money, without effort, without time. Maybe you're like me and, and my wife and you grew up really, you know, not having a whole lot. And you wanted to make sure that you provided for your families. I mean, look, there, there have been times I've worked three jobs to provide for my family so that my wife can stay home and home and, and school our kids. You know, it, because 
the house payment wasn't going to make itself. So I'm not saying these things are bad, but I'm saying if that's what we're living for, that's going to be an issue. And it's really important for our families as well. I mean, look, if, if we tell our kids and our families that the church comes first, but we're living for the stuff that money provides, you think they're going to notice that? You think they're going to be able to tell? Yeah. And then fill that in with anything. If you say that the kingdom comes first and anything else does, your kids are going to see it and they're going to recognize your hypocrisy. They're either going to follow in the same footsteps as you, or they might even just say goodbye to all of it. We have to live consistently with the values that we have, with the words that we say, and with the actions that we engage in. Completely. There can only be one master. Jesus says in this passage that this is an either-or situation, not a both-and. He doesn't say you can serve God and wealth. He says you can't. See, the love of wealth is contrasted with the love of God. Now, here's the question. Why is the love of wealth and the love of God, why are they in such opposition to each other? It's because the goals of each are very different, aren't they? You know, we'll get to 1 Timothy 6 here in a little bit when it talks about this. But, but one of the main points is this. Love of money is all about me. See, it's, it's about how much can I accumulate? How much power can I exert? It creates a hunger that can never be satisfied. I mean, don't you think that some people, once they, once they get so much money, they would just kind of stop? Do you see that happening in the world today? No, it's all about how much more can I get? And, and it's funny, you, know, you talk to, to missionaries that, in foreign countries, and, and sometimes you think, oh, well, you know, poor people, they don't have a love of money. No, they absolutely do. They think money's going to fix everything. And you talk to people who do have it. I mean, I had, I had clients that just had a little bit of money. My biggest client, actually, is a gun manufacturer. Probably a lot of you would know exactly this gun manufacturer if I told you the name of it. My, my client was the owner of this gun manufacturer. And I asked him how much money he was worth one day. Because I had to for my uh, documentation when he was doing it. He, he would bring me a million dollars every quarter, and I was one of about 10 financial advisors that he lived with. Sometimes $2 million. He said, I said, how much is your liquid net worth? I mean, that means how much cash do you have in the bank? He said, I'll just put 50 million. That doesn't include real estate. That doesn't include the value of his business. Doesn't include his guns, which I'm sure he had a few. Um, it, I mean, it, it doesn't include his securities. 50 million in cash. And he was an older guy. He kept on going. Now, maybe it's just because he loved what he was doing. But there's a lot of people that get to that particular point. They just keep on rolling. See, it creates all kind of evil. But let's go to 1 Timothy 6. 
Now, this passage is misquoted quite a bit. How many of you heard this passage that says money, and people say the money is the root of all evil? It's not. Look, look, folks, let me, you know, it's the same argument with guns. This is a tool. It is neutral. I can use this $10 to buy something good. I can use this $10 to buy something bad. It all depends upon my motivation and what it is that I want to do with it. It's a tool. So money is not the root of all evil. Pay attention to verse, uh, let's see, verse 10. It says, for the love of money is the root of all, literally, of all the evils. All the things. All the evils. You pick an evil <laughs> and trace it back. It's going to come back to the love of money. That's what Paul's saying. That's why people seek it so much. That's why people love it so much. That's why people trust in it so much. And again, I find it interesting that on our very currency, it says in God we trust. We can't trust in that piece of paper. There's only room for one master. So, the, the next point that I want to get across, we're going to spend you know, kind of most of our time here. Wealth is corruptible. Notice I didn't say wealth corrupts. It does. But wealth is actually also corruptible. Let's, let's flip over to Isaiah 36 and let's go to that passage. And, and like Davis mentioned, he's talking about the king of Egypt. But I think the principle kind of bears out. Now, a little bit of context. This is that, this is that time frame that, that Mike was talking about in his last message, right before the age of the Lord, you know, before Jesus is, you know, flexed a little bit without even breaking a sweat, killed 185,000 Assyrians. You know, when you start going in and saying that God told you, hey, I'm going to come here and destroy you, uh, when he didn't tell you that, uh, you, know, you kind of get yourself into trouble. Just, you know, be careful, you know. Say God said when God didn't say. Um, the, the guy who's talking, is, his name is, well, his title is Rev Shaka. It's a, it, means, it means leader. Um, Sennacherib was busy in Lakish, um, you know, putting up a siege mound and, and throwing those guys out. So in, in verse number four, it says, Then Rev Shaka said to them, Say that now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, talking about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence you have? I say, your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. See, he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has taken away? And I said to Judah, Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. See, this is all about trust. What are you trusting in? Now, I know he's saying, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, don't trust in him. He's a broken reed that if you lean on him, it's going to pierce your hand. It's the same thing with finances. It's the same thing with our material wealth. 
If you think it's bad now, wait till I, I describe you what's about to happen here. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. So when people start talking about real money, I think I'm in a group where I'll, under, I'll get the right answer for this. When people start talking about real money, what are they talking about? Gold. Hey, I knew that was going to come right out. Precious metals, right? I mean, man, you can't get much more real than that. Let's see what God says about that stuff. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is what? Perishable. Huh. Even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's flip over to verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Huh. God says the thing we trust in as real money is perishable. That's interesting. So I did a little research. I like to I like to learn stuff. And yeah, gold's perishable. God says so. But if you actually look at it physically, uh, gold is one of the elements that actually can't be destroyed through chemical reaction. Can't destroy it. Now you could take a, a mixture of hydrochloric acid, nitric acid, mix it three to one, and you can dissolve it. But the particles are still there, suspended in the solution. It cannot be destroyed. That's why God chose it. Okay. To give you an idea of what the real riches are actually like. But what does he mean by this is perishable? Well, what, is, what does 2 Peter chapter 3 say is going to happen? What's going to happen to the elements? They're going to be burned up with intense heat. And, and, and even though gold might not be able to be destroyed, can gold be taken away from you? Can thieves break in and steal? Can moth and rust destroy? Yeah, absolutely. Now, if that's true about something like silver and gold, again, good object lesson. How about this fiat paper currency we got going on right here? So it used to be, you know, this was backed by gold and silver. What's it backed by now? Hold on. It used to say it. It doesn't even say it anymore. What did it used to say? Redeemable by gold. And what was some of the other stuff? Yeah. And backed by full faith and credit of the United States government. It doesn't even say that anymore, folks. <laughs> so if, if somebody came up and said, hi, I'm from the government, and I promise, what do you know is about to come out of their mouth? <laughs> Bill, how, how do you know a politician's lying? The lips are moving. How do you think Ukraine feels about the, the promises of the United States government right now? 
I'm trying to tell you folks that the stuff that we got even in our pockets, it's, and, and you know, we got paper, but most of the stuff now is, is computer entry, isn't it? Guess what? It's going to get worse. You ready for this? How many of you have heard of the digital dollar? Anybody? Raise your hand. I want to see how many people have heard of it. Oh, good. Good. So how many, how many crypto investors do we have in here? All right. Excellent. I, I have some crypto. And just a little bit. I bought a few years ago. Yeah. In order to have cryptocurrency, you have to have this thing called a digital wallet. It is an online wallet. It is not, it is not a real wallet. It is online. And in that online wallet, you actually put, um, <clears throat> you transfer money into it, and then you can actually buy digital currency. If you wanted to have an actual Bitcoin, you couldn't have one because it's completely digital. It's non-tangible. Digital dollar. The Federal Reserve is just put out a paper. They are looking into creating digital dollar currency. What this means now, I hope, I hope, I hope you feel really comfortable with this because man, it makes makes me have all kinds of warm fuzzies. It's going to come out between the year 2025 and 2030. It's not going to replace cash yet. It's going to run side by side with cash. But most countries are working on this right now. China actually already has one. Because they're seeking to become the world's reserve currency and replace the U.S. dollar. If that happens, if the U.S. If the US currency gets replaced as the world reserve currency, you will see inflation in this country like you have never seen before. Because all of those dollars come flooding back to the United States. Right now, the reason, one of the reasons why America's reputation is so sullied in the world is because we ship all of our inflation over to foreign countries. Because international uh, commerce is done in U.S. dollars. And the exchange rates and, and the inflation rates in a lot of those countries is ridiculous because of it. Digital dollar. You will open a digital wallet with the Federal Reserve either with the Federal Reserve directly or with the bank that you have now. Into that digital wallet, which will be on your phone, you will have a series of passwords and biometric data to access it. The federal government will have your biometric information. Okay. And you will have all of your currency on your phone and we will then be able to remove all of the, and the reason they're doing this is they're saying it's, it's going to be extremely convenient. Now, I just want you to know something. When, when, I, when I talk about all this stuff, I look at conspiracy theory websites, but most of the stuff I read is actually from the people who are promoting this. So everything I got here was from the Federal Reserve or I got it from the people that are actually working on this project for the Federal Reserve. I had a chance to listen to some uh, interviews that they did and some, some, some publicity things that they were doing, and, and I spent a long time researching what they were saying. So the stuff I'm about to say are the things that they're talking about and what this is going to accomplish and what this is going to do. Not some guy with a tinfoil hat living in a cabin in Montana. Because we all know the weird stuff comes out of Montana. Right? <laughs> Are you sure it's in Montana? No, I've seen it. I, saw, I, th I think, you know, 
Oregon's got some weird stuff too. <laughs> I live in Richmond, Virginia. We're not immune to it either, folks. <clears throat> so, the big thing here, and this is actually my field, the Federal Reserve will have access to all of your transaction history, all of your data. And to let you know how big of a deal this is, I, I, I work for a fintech company, and one of the things that we can have, that we can bolt on to as a service that we provide for folks um, is something called data aggregation. What data aggregation is, is if any of you have used like mint.com or something like that, you type in your online credentials and your accounts get pulled in to these, uh, these online sites. And what happens is, is that all of your transaction history is followed, it creates auto budgets for you, it creates money management tools for you. Do you know what happens to that data? If you read the terms of service agreements, do you know where they make their money? They sell your data. All of these companies are interested in buying your data to know your consumer habits, what you're spending, so that they can market to you effectively. Data, ownership of data, is one of the biggest businesses in the world right now. And they're moving so that that data ownership is not done by private companies. It's actually controlled by the federal government and the, and the companies that they use to manage it for them. That's what the digital dollar is really going for. The federal government would issue you money directly or through intermediary banks. And one of the things that's being touted as a good thing is that the Fed is going to actively be able to control monetary policy much easier because think about this for a second. And these are the examples that they use, that the proponents of this system used. Inflation getting too high and the money supply is too big. We flip a switch and the money in your wallet expires in three months. Gets you to spend it. Reduces the money supply and circulation. Inflation goes down. Feeling warm yet? Government has a list of people that you, they don't want you to do business with. They flip a switch and you can't spend money there. Now this is the one that I created. Haven't received your latest set of vaccinations. Based upon your biometric data, Wallet gets turned off. Proponents say that this will make it easier to hand out things like tax returns, welfares, government benefits, and it's true. It absolutely will. The amount of rigmarole that has to take place behind the scenes to make any financial transaction is very complicated. It takes several days. This would be easy, you know. Um, you know, if I if I want Brad to build me a website and Brad agrees, I go over there, I take my phone, I set it next to his, I tap it, I send him the money, and he's got it. And he's got it. There's no backward thing that's happening behind the scenes. It's a it's a transaction between Brad. See, so it's efficient. But they'll have all of your information. Okay. What I'm trying to tell you here is that this is not something you can trust in. If silver and gold you can't trust, you can't trust this either. The next thing I want to talk about besides the digital dollar, it gets even better. This 
How many of you have heard of something called the Great Reset? You are? Why? We've got an informed group of people here. This is, a, this is encouraging. World Economic Forum touting something called the Great Reset. And it's based upon um, something that happened in 2008. Remember the stock market crash? And the, uh, they, they came up with something called the Global Redesign Initiative. And they started working on it. Now, the big thing is, when governments try to transform things, it doesn't work very well because governments are really inefficient, aren't they? They're tied with bureaucratic red tape. But man, if you can get the private sector involved, private sector knows how to make stuff happen. Private sector makes it happen fast. Uh, so, so Brad was talking about the, the endless meetings. That doesn't happen in the private sector because they've got to make money. They've got to make changes. And so they cut through that stuff. They have like maybe one or two meetings when the government will have like 50 and they get it done. It's the private corporations that are making the Great Reset happen. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of them, the biggest companies in the world that have signed on to this. Now, I'm, I was going to show you a video, but it wasn't working out too well. Um, so what we have, uh, what I have here are the eight predictions for the year 2030 from the Great Reset. So you can actually Google it, the Great Reset, and take you to the World Economic Forum and look at what they're trying to do. One of the, the first prediction, no more private ownership of any property. Gone. How do you think they're going to make something like that happen? Only through catastrophic mechanisms. You going to give up your stuff? Americans aren't giving up their stuff. Are you kidding me? Cold dead hands, right? People get shot for trying to take people's stuff in America. You know, much less governments. Uh, let's see some of these other ones. U.S. dominance is over. That's actually what it says. U.S. dominance is over by the year 2030. That's their goal. American companies are working to destroy the United States dominance over the economic and political systems by the year 2030. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's one that's... I like meat. You're not going to be eating any more meat either because it's not good for the environment. You know, cow farts or something like that. What? That's what they're saying. I mean, cows produce more methane because they expel so much gas. Right? So it's making the global warming worse. And you Americans eat more red meat than anybody else, so you need to stop. And the other one I think is applicable. Western values will have been tested to the breaking point and they will be replaced. Hey, what's one of the most powerful Western values yes. that exists? What we believe right here. Amen. This book that our society was built upon. Corporations have already moved to embrace ESG. ESG, environmentalism, social justice, and governance. Matter of fact, Merrill Lynch, one of the largest brokerage firms in the world, started putting on their brokerage statements for all of their customers, your ESG score. How well your investments are working to save the planet, promote social justice, 
and stakeholder governance. Now, it used to be if you own shares in a company, you are the stakeholder for that company. You own that company. It's moving away from shareholder ownership to stakeholder ownership, which means if that company is doing something that affects somebody else negatively, they actually have the right to tell that company what to do now. And the companies are advocating this. Okay. Now, we could talk offline about that, but that's a huge deal, by the way. So, what's the goal? with all of this. And I'm going to you know, kind of move along here. The, the goal that keeps on coming up, and then there's another thing called the fourth industrial revolution that I don't have time to go into, but it includes things like AI, quantum computing, uh, virtual reality, um, cybernetics, 3D printing. Oh, and coming soon to a town near you, viral vaccines. You know what a viral vaccine is? It's a vaccine that is inseminated as a virus. They're, they're testing it in animal populations right now, and it spreads. The vaccine actually spreads. You don't need to get a shot. The vaccine is contagious. This sounds like I'm crazy, like I'm nuts, like I stuck my head in a microwave oven and turned it on. I didn't. I think I read that in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. You nut jobs that won't get vaccinated will fix you. We'll make it so that it's contagious. You're in the grocery store next to somebody who has the vaccine. You get, just like you get a cold or COVID or whatever it is, from that individual, you'll now get vaccinated. Whether you like it or not. Anybody see I Am Legend? That's how that one turned out too. Just saying. It's a complete overhaul of our entire world. This is the terminology that they're using constantly. It's a complete remake of the world order, complete remake of the entire system. And because of COVID, because of the pandemic, they have hit the accelerator really fast. Does anybody else think what's happening over there in Europe right now just seems kind of weird? I don't know if it's gonna turn into anything else beyond this or not. But what I'm saying is, is that you have been created and born for such a time as this. And we, it, it's, it's past time to stop playing games with our faith. Right. It's past time. We have got to get serious about building. If you haven't been, if you have been, praise the Lord. I'm so happy for you. But if you haven't been putting all diligence in building your spiritual house, it has to start now. Amen. Right. If you're going to per persevere through these things. Look, we don't even, it's not about just persevering, folks. We have the opportunity to thrive. Because people are going to start waking up. They already are. I mean, this guy is so busy, he can't keep his head screwed on straight. You're, you're going all over the place, man. I, I had the privilege of going on a lot of his studies. He's got so much stuff going on. 
Because people are waking up. We got stuff going on back in Richmond. You know, when you start seeing statues and stuff come down and riots happening all the time, people start paying attention. We got great opportunities. Right. You know, Brad mentioned, I really appreciate Brad's message. I keep mentioning him. You know, people don't trust God when it's going good, but man, when they start looking down and, and they can tell something's not right, the whole way of life is changing. They're going to start trusting the Lord. They're going to start looking for something to trust in. And if we don't have our spiritual houses in order, you know, they're not even going to know we have an answer. That's exactly right. Let's put our focus here. Revelation 17. Wrapping up. I'm really excited about the second half of this. It's like... I feel like Debbie Downer over here. <laughs> yeah. It's like whammy, no whammies. <laughs> what was that, Scott? Big bucks, no yeah, big bucks, no whammies. <laughs> if, if, if you got stuff like this, got stuff like this? Use it. For the right reasons. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, and with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell upon the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and unclean things of her immorality, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now pay attention to what she does. And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. That's what she's about. The wealth, the splendor, the, the, the riches of the world, the pleasure of the world. It's all about destroying the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And look what's going to happen. So she, see, if you pay attention to follow the imagery back, the, the beast she's riding on is government. Yes. Okay, now watch what government's going to do. And you see the seeds of this today, folks. So the government, verse 14, these will wage war against the Lamb. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, that's the wrong one. Uh, verse 15, sorry. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So this is the system 
the monetary pleasure-based system that rules over the governments, and the governments one day are going to say, we've had enough, and they're going to tear it down. What's the result going to be? Verse 9. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 9, not 17, my mistake. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear for torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Complete implosion of the financial system. Complete. So what's the warning here? Verse number four of chapter 18. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, Amen. so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she is paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. See, and, and, and so what's the reaction of the people? The church is supposed to rejoice over this. Look at chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for her, or for you against her. If the system that ran this world that provided all the wealth and the pleasure was destroyed in a single day as this prophesies, would you rejoice? That's the test of whether or not you're in Babylon or not. I'm not saying it would be fun, folks. I'm not saying, woohoo, we can't find food anymore. Hey. No more electric heat or air conditioning. I'm not saying that. But if you doubt in your heart of hearts, can't rejoice that the, 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 the plan of God is being fulfilled. And that this is the necessary step for Jesus to come back. This is what it's about. All right, I'm finishing up here. I'm, I'm almost done, Bill. Good. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to finish up. I know we were already there, but there's another part of this that I just want to hit real quick. Wealth is a tool, like I mentioned. 1 Timothy chapter 6. What, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this, this money that we have? Verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. How about this? Be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's a tool. It's not to be loved. Like any other tool that you have, it's not to be hoarded. 
It's to be used for the glory of the kingdom of God. Its purpose is twofold. We, we have to provide for our physical needs. Absolutely. I'm not telling you to sell everything you have so that you can then become a burden on the church. That would kind of be self-defeating. But are there things that we can sacrifice for the kingdom of God? Remember the widow? Yeah. To give you a picture of what that was like, the, the widows might... You know, all these people, they, they, they would have these, these metal shoots. And remember, money wasn't paper back then. It was coins. And, and these people would come in and, and dump large amount of coins. You know, they, maybe they went to the bank and got pennies. You know, and dumped, you know, dumped $100 worth of pennies in the, in the offering. You know. And this, this woman comes, this, this poor little woman, she comes and she just drops two little coins in there. And Jesus said, she gave more than all of them. They gave out of their abundance. Now, what did he say about her? She gave all that she had to live on. I mean, think about that. This woman who didn't have anything, this temple that was full of gold and, and, and precious metals, but she gave it for the glory of God. And what she did, we're still talking about. A lot of times, preachers, you know, they have to eke by with nothing. Yeah. I'm going to say something, okay? I, I'm the guy that Bill's talking about. I've, I've been a tent maker for 24 years, so I haven't gotten paid for preaching for a long time. So, but I am a preacher. And I have been charged for the gospel in a very, very long time. So, I think I can say this. And hopefully it doesn't apply to anybody in this room. I just feel like i got to say it. What evangelists do, people who dedicate their lives to full-time ministry do. And what you do as a Christian. It's the most important job on the face of the earth. There's nothing more important that. Nothing. What we do as Christians, what preachers do, what, you know, leadership does in the church, we work tirelessly every single day. You do, I do, to save eternally people's souls. There's nothing more important than that. And what God says is that if, if, if we, uh, if, if people who are doing things full time like that, if they're giving you the eternal life, the things of the spirit, he says we're indebted to give them what they need physically. Do you know why I've been a tent maker for 24 years? Because the one time I wasn't, and I was preaching in a church that was 250 to 300 people. I'm 24, 25 years old. I just had my, my daughter born. They didn't like what I was preaching because I was preaching from this. And they decided to starve us out. And I made the decision I was never going to put my family in that position again. I've never been treated worse from anybody else on the face of this earth than church people. 
Now you could make a claim that they weren't true church people. I don't know how anybody can do something like that and claim to be a Christian, but they did. The concept that a lot of churches like to use is, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. Preachers shouldn't have to beg for money. And I'll tell you another thing. I'm just kind of late. I don't. I hope you don't have this mindset. If a, if you got a preacher that you're paying, he don't work for you. He works for God. Amen. That church that was paying me, the last church that that paid me as a salary, there were groups of people that I was working with over in Pittsburgh and I was living in, in the Youngstown, Ohio area. It's about an hour and a half away. And I was going there a couple times a week. I was going there to, to, to assemble with them and study with them and, and we converted a lot of people out of there and they told me to stop. They said, we pay you, you should be here. You wanna know what happened if I listened to them? Kelly Fritz wouldn't be a Christian today. She got immersed, she got discipled by one of the people that I won at that Bible study that they told me to stop going to. Because I said, I don't work for you. And they said, fine, we won't pay you. I kept going though. In Acts chapter 2, last passage. Verse 44. This is going to offend our American sensibilities, our capitalistic sensibilities. But I don't care. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with all as anyone might have need. You know, they regarded as nothing belonging to themselves. So what people like to do is they go in here and they say, see, Christianity is socialistic. No, socialism takes your stuff by force and redistributes it by force. Yes. These people still had private ownership of property, but they viewed in their mind that we're family. And whatever family needs, family's gonna get. If you need me to sell a piece of property, I'll sell a piece of property and give it to the church so that the people can have what they need. Now, it's interesting, you don't really see this again. You know, you see it throughout, throughout the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira got killed because they lied about doing stuff like this. But you go to the second century, there's a Roman satirist by the name of Lucian. I've, I've studied some of this stuff out because I'm, I'm preparing for a message in two weeks uh, at our family camp, and he, he said some things that were relevant. Second century. Oh, I got it right here. That's why I opened up my phone. Sorry. Oh, where is it? Where is it? Wow. 
Lucian of Samosata. Here's what he said. He said, <clears throat> um, talking about Christians, he said, the Christians, you know, worship this man to this day, the dis and he's being sarcastic, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, <clears throat> which are so common among them. And then it was pressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers. From that moment, they are converted. They deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his loss. Now pay attention to this. This is the second century. This is a hundred years after that was written in Acts. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them as merely common property. That wasn't an anomaly in Acts chapter 2. That was the way the church lived yes. for a hundred years. <laughs> if we're dead serious about establishing the first century church and restoring the first century church, we need to restore the first century concept of who actually owns our stuff. God does. And it is designed to be utilized for his kingdom. Now again, nobody's going to guilt anybody into doing it. Nobody's going to manipulate anybody to do it. Nobody's going to take anybody's stuff and doing it. They regarded it as common property. So if we're going to seriously make a difference... Especially when things get bad. We need to really start taking care of each other in a heightened sense. Yes. Now, second message. It's going to be a lot more positive. I, but I personally think this is positive. Yes. It kind of frees us from the burden of this materialistic life. And sets us free to do good and you know, doing good's the right thing, but man, it, God made it so that it actually feels pretty good too, doing the right thing. So brother, let's not trust in the things of this world, let's trust in God, and let's use the things that he's given us for the furtherance of his kingdom. Thank you. Man,